Okay, welcome to episode seven, Music City Horror. Um, I'm here with the girls, Lena, Kayla, Kayla, and I'm Eli, and we have a pretty cool episode. Um, we have our interview with uh, Michael Berryman coming up um, towards the end of the, the episode, so we're kind of kind of skirt over the the new stuff. Uh, wasn't a lot um, in the post Halloween um, days since then, so we'll kind of skim over some of that stuff. So it's a sad lull. Yeah, it is kind of sad. It's Thanksgiving or not Thanksgiving, Halloween hangover. Yeah, it's like oh, post ha- post Halloween blues. Yeah, yeah. But I'm glad we're doing this because it makes it a little bit better. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> guys, we're all in the same room. <laughs> we are. This yes. is the uh, this is the first time that this has happened. So. It's a special day. We're going to try to start doing this more often. I'm not used to podcasting in pants. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and and just, so you, just so you all are really jealous, uh, Lena made us lasagna. So That's how we're all, celebrating. We're all, we're all uh, carrying and carting around food babies at the moment. I should have worn, worn sweatpants. <laughs> so... Uh, I'll be better prepared next time. But, yeah, there's not any new stuff. Um, apparently, they raised the level cap on the Friday the 13th game, which I have still not played. I'm a terrible person. <laughs> You're I not need, terrible. I need, to, I need to get on that. But, yeah, I think we're just going to get straight into it. There's, there's a lot of special stuff coming up. So, people, if you're trying to be an actor, take notes. Yeah, I think... You know, again, we're not going to get in depth, but I think we're going to mention Stranger Things. Um, I think three of us have finished it, right? Yes. I'm almost, I'm almost done. I promise. KB is <laughs> she, now in her defense, she did finish Mindhunters, so she's the only one that has finished that, and I'm two episodes into it, and it's excellent. So she did wrap that up. Yeah, no, no spoilers. Um, I kind of made sure since I had talked about it before, and I think I was uh, really, I was the only one that was like super into watching it. Um, you guys are slackers. <laughs> but now you've made me interested in watching. It. I, I made a point to not start Stranger Things too until I finished Mindhunters because I knew that if I started Stranger Things 2, I would not finish it. But Mindhunters is absolutely phenomenal. I was so incredibly impressed. If you don't know what Mindhunter is, um, it's a David Fincher original Netflix series based, I believe, in the early, late late 70s. I don't really know, um, but this was around the time that they were not very familiar. They, meaning the FBI, I apologize. The FBI were not really familiar with how serial killers worked. Um, they kind of ignored the repetition and the MO killing. So this was all kind of about the two FBI detectives that really coined the term serial killers in general. It's incredible. Give it a watch if you're done with Stranger Things too. Um, and then we'll talk about that next when I actually <laughs> when I actually get finished and it's not because I didn't want to finish it's because I haven't had time <laughs> yeah but again no spoilers we've all finished Stranger Things the rest of us so yeah thoughts yeah loved it um the character development in this season just brings back all of our favorites plus they really worked especially I think on one particular character and now Is I it Steve? love them. Well, I'm not gonna say anything. I've heard I, everybody keeps talking about Steve. About so Steve, yes. everybody loves Steve. Um, so we'll. But yeah, we start to love characters in new and different ways this season, and I just thought it was yeah. excellent. I agree because there's relationships uh, that that form between different characters, and I love seeing that happening. Like, and not just like boyfriend girlfriend, but father-son kind of relationships or mm-hmm. fa- father-daughter mm-hmm. um so yeah I, i'm thrilled with it and can't wait for more <laughs> um I, there was a few things that the payoff didn't work for me um uh, particularly and i think it was just um you know with as many storylines as there are going on at once and you know the hype from the first season i, I think it's to be expected but still i, I would put it you know, head and shoulders above, you know, 98% of the other stuff that's out right now. So, um, 
pretty uh, pretty solid. You don't see a lot of second seasons, or if they're, if they're treating this like a movie, a sequel that's as strong or better than the first one. So. And I believe that we will be discussing that the next time that we record. So. Yeah, I think you... we'll we'll give people that'll give them about a month, and then we'll. we'll Which we'll is do... plenty of fucking time. Right. Yeah. Get yeah. it together. Yeah. Everyone in the <laughs> things too. Everyone in the world except KB has binge watched it so far. So. Fuck me, right. <laughs> So that is our last spoiler-free mention, and you know, I guess next time we'll we'll dig in and go over the highs and lows of that show. And um, still going, still going strong. It's still, you know, everyone's still talking about it. So, still a big hit. So, Um, I think that was, I think that's it, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think we're ready to dive in. So, like we said, we we had the pleasure of talking to Mr. Michael Berryman. and I mean, it was crazy. We talked almost an hour, right? Yeah, I mean, he's, he's incredible, yeah. y'all. Great guy. Yeah. I think I have a crush on him now. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he's he's one of the most beloved character actors, in my opinion, mm-hmm. in the in in horror culture. So mm-hmm. this was a pretty big honor for our first interview. Props to uh, props to Eli for that. I did. We yeah. did nothing. <laughs> he orchestrated this, so this was yes. uh, this was really really fucking cool to do. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and it's he's cool. he's one of those. Well, like a lot of people, really, you know, there's a lot below the surface, and you know, he even points out he got one of his first gigs from, you know, the guy straight up was like, "You have the look I'm looking for," and um, but I think if you listen to his interview, you'll see. I mean, he's very very smart. Um, uh, actually, he has a book coming out, so we'll mention that, of course. Um, so, so yeah, so we're going to take a break, and when we come back, we will have our interview with Michael Berryman. All right, so we are very excited. Um, here with us today is uh, the living legend, Mr. Michael Berry, uh, Berryman. Thank you for joining us today. We appreciate it. Hey, you're very welcome. I'm glad I'm still a living. Yeah, <laughs> right. Um, it's, um, you know, is, is it weird to think about, you know, how long your career's been? You know, I mean, is it, you, you've, you've been doing this a while now. Is it, is it kind of, uh, you know, one of those you wake up and you're like, oh my gosh, I've, I've been doing it this long? Um, yeah, it's been 40 years. It, 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 it's peculiar because it's not an everyday uh, lifestyle, so to speak, and I never really was planning on being an actor. I I got discovered by George Powell back in the uh, early 70s when I moved back to my hometown of Santa Monica, and he just happened to walk in um, to my little shop there, and he happened to walk in and, and introduce himself, and he gave me an opportunity to get into the Screen Actors Guild and work on a movie called Doc Savage. Uh, George Powell was a very much a visionary in his day. He he did War of the Worlds. He produced The Time Machine, um, When Planets, When Worlds Collide, and um, a, a lot of others. So he's a very, very nice gentleman, and he, he had a very uh, a visionary uh, way of uh, writing and telling stories. And... I really wasn't too interested in, in being an actor. I um, I had a degree in art history, and I wanted to homestead in Alaska, actually. And he said, well, uh, you have the look that I need to play the undertaker in Doc Savage. And I go, the coroner, and I go, well, I said, okay, I guess I can do that. And I worked two days. I had my union card, my dues paid, and about 300 bucks in my pocket. And I figured, well, you know, that was odd. That was strange. And I was uh, actually planning on moving up north and doing other things. And I got a phone call a couple months later for um, um, a casting agency. And they said, could you come down to Culver Studios and meet with some people with a, a movie based on a book called One Fill of the Cuckoo's Nest? And I said, oh. I said, well, I'm kind of in. Uh, my dad was a brain surgeon. And I said, I'm familiar with. You know, medicine. I'm familiar with the mental uh, mental hospitals. I'm familiar with the story. I go. Uh, you probably want to talk to me about playing the role because I had a craniectomy when I was very young, and maybe uh, um, 
and that's the reason. They go, yeah, you don't have any speaking lines, but you'll be, you know, playing the part of Alice. And I said, well, that is an interesting character, but the main reason I went to the meeting was, number one, is possible work, and number two, I had a chance to meet Michael Douglas and Joel Douglas and Jack Nicholson. So, of course, I went, and um, we had a, a really great meeting, and they said, um, you're going to go to Oregon and work for a couple months with us on this project, and it's, you know, the best people in the business, and it's, uh, you know, possibly an Oscar winner. And, and it was, so... The last thing they told me uh, when I left the meeting was, uh, have your agent call me. Well, I didn't have an agent. So I went to uh, the Screen Actors Guild and I got the list of agencies that are franchised. And I remember going to one of the agencies and, and um, you know, they didn't know who I was and I, I didn't have a career at that point. Uh, they basically looked at me and they said, well, what makes them think you're an actor? And I said, look, I have one credit. I said, they're hiring me because of my looks, and uh, and um, um, I'm playing a lobotomy patient. I don't have any lines. So I'm pretty sure I can pull off, you know, this role. And by the way, why should I give you 10% for doing absolutely nothing and having such a, uh, um, a shitty attitude? <laughs> and so I told them, uh, um, never mind. And I walked away, and I, I got my car, I drove home, and we had, my, my, my family, we had some friends that were uh, Disney uh, contract players, um, like uh, the old world of Disney, there was a, a guy who always played the, in the Indian, he was actually Italian, his name was Anthony Caruso, and he had a little mole on his cheek, he was the, the guy, and um, you'd recognize him from, if you ever watched um, um, Star Trek, uh, when they, the original, they went down to Earth because the planet was getting our television broadcast and it was all about gangsters and stuff, gangster movies, and he was the one that wanted, hey, I like that fancy eater that, you know, that uh, uh, Kirk's got. Well, that was Anthony Caruso, so I called Anthony and I said, I had this, this movie job, but I have to have a contract done with an agent. And he goes, oh, well, uh, let me call my guy. And he did, and uh, we uh, got a contract, and I made uh, work six days a week, 12-hour days, and I think I made uh, $700 a week, and Jack made 10000 a day. <laughs> wow. <laughs> but, but, he, but, but, you know, he'd been around a while. So, so that's how we got started. And the next thing after that was a phone call from uh, um, uh, that uh, Wes Craven guy. Oh, that guy. <laughs> that guy. So, so for those that aren't familiar with the movie business, um, that's not normal what happened with you, right? Like you don't – most people starting out don't get into a, you know, Oscar-winning movie. You know, they kind of do the, you know, the B stuff or commercials or something like that. So that, that was a little unusual um, for people outside the business, correct? Oh, very much so. It was just um, – I guess I uh, had a good guardian angel. I built up some good – you know, um, universal, uh, some good credits for, you know, doing good things. It, it was serendipitous of anything else. So, um, so yeah, I, I, I started backwards. I've done a lot of B movies since then, but, and a lot of, you know, a lot of, you know, really classy, you know, TV, X-Files, Star Trek, Z Nation, stuff like that. And, and weird science. But, uh, as long as it's a good script and, uh, you know, the crew and the director are on board, uh, we try to tell a good story. Well, you mentioned Wes, Wes Craven, so I guess we can go ahead and uh, segue to probably one of the most terrifying movies I've ever seen, which, when you know, when I found out that we were going to be talking to you, I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> um Hills have eyes. I mean, how how did you how did you get involved? What were your thoughts when you originally kind of got wind of what you were going to be getting into? How'd that go for you? Well, I, I had a meeting with Peter Locke, my producer, and Wes Craven, and uh, they told me the backstory of the McBean family. And I had lived in the mountains and north of the mountains in Big Bear, which is east of LA. Um, there's a the high desert. So where we filmed out near Victorville, I was very familiar with that area. And so 
I just felt that the remoteness of where we were filming uh, just made it creepier, made it more threatening, made it more, you know, there is no, you can't dial 911. There's no hope, there's no help. And you have to, like in the story, when Bobby finally says, you know, they're going to come back. They, 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 you know, they, they killed mom, they killed dad, they stole the baby, and they're going to be back. Well, what are we going to do? You know, he's, he's, he's yelling at Susan Lanier. And, and they have to, you know, get their act together and um, meet uh, deadly force with uh, the same intensity because they wanted to live and they deserve to live. So um, meeting Wes was interesting because you know, he was a college professor. He's very soft-spoken. He had that, he, 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 you know, if he was a, a hoodlum, you'd never know because he had that very gentle look and demeanor. But he had a wicked... A really wicked pen, you know, when he wrote, uh, when he would write a screenplay, and uh, we kept it very uh, bare bone. Uh, um, uh, everything that everyone says, everything that it, all the action that takes place in the Hills Highlights is very lean. There's not a lot of jibber jabber. There's not a lot of, you know. Um, well, we'll get around to the next situation. No, the next situation did meet you straight in the face. So um, I, I really enjoyed it. And after a while, the uh, White Bread family, as we called them, and then there was the Hills family, everybody was so into the roles that when we broke for lunch and stuff like that, or even at the hotel, we kind of congregated according to the Hills family, you know, and then the other ones uh, kind of hung um to themselves, it was. It's, we've become friends for decades afterwards. But during the filming, it was almost like we were living in a parallel uh, world. It was pretty cool. You have to keep the magic alive somehow. <laughs> <laughs> Stay in character a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Well, it, it it gets no matter how often you've seen it. Um, after the trailer attack, it, it just gets back under your skin and the tension builds without a lot of uh, heavy gratuitous violence or or a lot of splatter and stuff like that. I'm not a big fan of uh, uh, splatter porn, as I call it, or torture, you know, torture shock stuff. I just find those, it's very weak writing and not very well-developed characters, and, and I don't really, it's not my cup of tea. Um, if I want something like a scary movie for me would be something like... Uh, well, The Hills, of course, but, or The Original Exorcist. I mean, things that really get on your skin. The first nightmare on Elm Street was really excellent. But uh, um, it's funny, being the, uh, one of the, quote, kings of horror, uh, I, um, I appreciate really good special effects and whatnot, but um, I'm not a gore, gore fiend, so to speak. I guess I'm not 16 years old anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I was really interested to hear that you have a art history background. Um, yes. Yeah, that's really neat. Um, how does that influence your taste in movies, especially horror movies? Um, do you have a eye for visuals that you still uh, keep sharp when you're watching a movie? Um, well, I do. I like I like all of the uh, Universal classics because the, the way they were filmed. Um, I have a, a very dear friend who's a, a film historian, and he always. Uh, uh, he comes up with these really um, interesting films from Australia and uh, uh, Italy and Czechoslovakia and Romania that are just uh, fascinating. Um, there's one, um, uh, I'm trying to dig them up, they're hard to find, but they are available. There's one story, I forget the title, um, it's a European film, I think, and it uh, is about a, um, um, a, a boy who doesn't have a heart, and he goes to a sh- his parents take him to a shop, and uh, instead of a heart, the uh, gentleman installs a cuckoo clock. And it's just, it, it, it's almost surreal. But uh, the movies I, that really get me interested are the, the ones that are um, almost dreamscape and um, question your... Um, the intersection of humanity and situation, because our choices in situations is what defines our humanity. 
so I think that that's to me that's the litmus test um, for a good story and a good film, short film or full feature. Um, they're just as strong. Um, um, I also am a big fan of uh, cinematography and uh, how a, a, a shot is structured. Uh, I mean, just anything by Ridley Scott, it will help you understand that. And with an art history background, I studied composition, colors and shades and all the masters and all of that. So uh, it, it just sort of was a good fit for me to get into motion pictures. Uh, there's a really wonderful film, if you have not seen it, it's the only film by Andrew Getty of the Getty family. He passed away a year ago. And the movie is called The Evil Within. And um, it, it's available on DVD. And it's, um, it's very surrealistic. Um, he spent many years in post-production, did all hands-on. Um, it, it has some incredible, incredible uh, scene sequences that are uh, from uh, dreamscape and in and out of reality. And um, um, I highly recommend it. It's very rich. Nice. I love that recommendation. I <laughs> wrote it down so I can go watch it soon. <laughs> I, think you'll like, I really think you'll like it. I love it. Well, we know you've been in front of the camera. Have you thought about working behind the camera, or have you been involved in producing or anything like that? Um, I would love to do direct something. Uh, I'm uh, um, 68, so maybe it's time to do that. I, I have a doctor friend, Jesse Burke, in Arkansas, and winning awards for short films. Um, uh, you can Google this one. It's called One Please. And it's about a 15-minute short suburbia. Ice cream man is coming in the neighborhood, and the daughter wants an ice cream. Dad's smoking a pipe, reading the paper. Mom is uh, chopping vegetables for dinner. And the daughter gets what is required to pay for the price of an ice cream. I won't tell you what it is, but it's <laughs> different. He's a big fan of uh, Rod Sterling. Uh, there's another short one that we did called Cured, which is uh, black and white. Uh, he's a surgeon, so we found it as one of the surgical centers. And parents bring their daughter in, and uh, I play the surgeon, and I, and I do an incision on her forehead and uh, make a, it's a hole. And I literally take a vacuum and vacuum out the black. Uh, it's like a cloud. And then fill it back up, and she's fine. Um, there uh for your listening audience, I recommend going to like the Alamo Draft House or any of the independent short film, short subject film uh, festivals. They have a great one in Boise, Idaho. There must be one anywhere close to your zip code, but uh, that's where you get to see some fantastic ideas. What I'm working on personally is uh, finishing my autobiography. Um, I'm about page uh, 68 right now, and I'm doing a quick rewrite because uh, my wife told me it needs to be even more emotionally in, in, in impressive, so that, that's pretty easy to do, uh, considering <laughs> having a, a physical difference and you know, whatnot growing up in the 50s and 60s. And um, through working in films, it allowed me to get involved with other people. Like, for instance, when I did The Crow with Brandon Lee in the wardrobe, was fitting one day, I got to meet um, Paul Newman. And we had a conversation, and I got interested and invited to get involved with his charities for facial cranial reconstructive surgery for children. And they pay for everything. They bring the kids out to a camp in Florida in St. Petersburg, and they get all the mentoring and information and contacts and the surgeries are all covered for. Um, so uh, to me, uh, uh, the arts, the visual arts, is I love very much. I love good music. But um, art is a canopy that uh, extends beyond just uh, entertainment. It, it encompasses the art of being a human being and we tell stories for a reason. There's a lot of stuff out there, uh, music, you know, sculpture, uh, film, whatever, TV, books, and not all of it is is so artful. So I think you have to fill 
your communication to your viewing, listening, or, or whatever audience it is, even if it's dance, you have to fill them with the art, and then it is, and then I feel it is an artful experience. Yeah, absolutely. That's beautiful. <laughs> Uh, we've got a little bit of poetry in this. <laughs> I, can, I can tell. <laughs> well, you had um, you had touched on um, you know working on the crow, and of course, um, you know you're probably most known for you know your horror um, aspects. But you also, like you mentioned, you, Star Trek. Uh, was it the Next Generation? Was that what you were on? Oh, I was the. Uh, I didn't have any lines in Star Trek for the Voyage Home, directed by Leonard Nimoy. Right. Um, uh, but it was beautiful makeup, and it was a really cool role. Um, but I was in um, Next Generation. And I, I, I just a quick couple of scenes with uh, Patrick. Uh, I was uh, Captain Ricks, and I was uh, trying to convey to them about a conspiracy. But the crow was magical. Mm-hmm. Um, there's been talk and babble about, you know, a remake, and I can only, there's only one crow, Rochelle Davis is a very, very close, and um, uh, she played, uh, you know, um, um, uh, what's that, uh, um, can't think of her name right now, in the crow is uh, um, Sarah, she was Sarah. Oh, right. Um, yeah, there's a beautiful, beautiful, I got to work, you know, Brandon pretty darn well over the course of a month and uh, my favorite scene is when um, the mother who's the heroin addict and he has her in the, uh, and, and he holds her arm and the heroin comes out and he says heroin is bad for you mother is the name for God on the hearts and lips of all children mm-hmm. your da- go your daughter needs you and there's certain moments that are just magical um, one of my favorite cinematographic moments in The Crow is when he's walking down the sidewalk and it's snowing and the trick-or-treater children go by him and as he looks over his shoulder and turns back and he has this just wonderful, beautiful smile. Um, and it's shot over cranked, meaning more frames per second. So it gives a magical, rhythmical movement and the focus is uh, uh, mid-range, so they come out of soft focus into sharp focus and fade into soft focus. Um, those are the little kinds of camera moves that uh, um, I would encourage any young up-and-coming filmmaker to get yourself an old camera and handheld and, and just practice pulling focus while you're moving. Uh, some of the better films have a long um, sequence where the camera moves throughout the space of the scene without a lot of intercuts. Uh, and that kind of stuff is, I think, just is, uh, uh, it's, it's almost musical. You know? mm-hmm. So all of those elements are, are, are quite, quite wonderful. Um, and if some of you are into music, I had a lovely uh, weekend uh, at a show in San Antonio last weekend. And uh, Harry Manfredini, who, uh, Ooh, yeah, yeah, he's just brilliant. And we got to talk, I and mean, we might have had a few glasses of wine, but we were with some <laughs> other musicians, and they were sharing stories about little hole in the walls that they went to uh, late at night, where all of a sudden somebody says, uh, "Do you realize who, who's going to be playing tonight for a little bit?" And I'm so not envious, but just like, wow, I wish I could have been a fly on the wall because that's magical, creative music that you'll never hear it on a record, you'll never hear a tape of it. You just have to go to where that magic happens and where it takes place. So uh, I, I recommend that people, you know, get out and, you know, go to that back alley, uh, little hole in the wall where that music is just drawing you in and just absorb it because mainstream TV and mainstream radio pretty much sucks well I mean speaking of of mainstream and you kind of mentioned a little bit about this I think they've actually I don't know if they've officially announced the Crow remake 
Um, they're they're tossing around that Jason Momoa is gonna be the crow, which is an interesting choice. I, in my opinion, I don't think it should be remade. Um, but what are your thoughts on on the big resurgence of horror remakes? Is there any remake that you would maybe want to be a part of? Um. Well, um, a, a remake is an, uh, you know, it's a shout out. It's an homage uh, by a younger director to uh, someone that they admire. Absolutely. Uh, I'm not. Uh, I would never say don't do it, but if you're going to attempt it, I mean, really do your homework. Um, uh, I, I, I don't think I'll ever. Um, see uh, another crow other than the original just for personal reasons um, um, Brandon and I uh, there's a lot of footage that was uh, that sort of died when he passed away and we were supposed to come back I was supposed to come back and shoot for two weeks of the uh, Skull Cowboy having the three confrontations with Eric Draven and we were looking so much forward to the emotional content and the depth. We had spent many hours in his trailer um, talking about how we were going to kind of crescendo those moments and and really, really get into the, you know, where I tell him before I disintegrate. There is some footage of that in in the double DVD disc and the book, The Making of the Crow, published by Kids and Sink Press. And uh, we did film some of that, but but it was mostly for lighting test and uh, special effects test, where I tell him the rules of engagement because the Skull Cowboy uh, was all he and his fiance were murdered, and then uh, we came back because of the, with the crow's help, um, and the message the message was I tell him kill the ones that killed you both if you don't follow those rules, then the blood will not return when you're shot. And and then if you don't follow these, you can't help other uh, other people of the living. It, it, you can only have the uh, vengefulness, not revenge, um, to balance the scale, so to speak. And then he says, "Well, I'm already dead." I mean, I mean, these are very poignant lines that we that we shot. And then, of course, it, you know. It's a, the uh, safety on the set is obviously very important, but um, it was a real blessing to uh, just spend a couple weeks with him and get to know him as, as much as we did. But um, I've even had these conversations with James Abar, and uh, um, we, if it was ever to be remade, uh, and I don't think it ever sh- should be unless you, you're doing it, you know. Something other than the first story. Um, um, uh, I just feel that they skull cowboy uh, died with Brandon, so um, I don't think I'll ever, you know, go see another crow. Uh, I, I would go see John, Donnie Darko or something like that. <laughs> instead, you know, that'd be cool. <laughs> There's some things that shouldn't be touched. I agree, and uh, I love the song in the Donnie Darko. It's just so hauntingly beautiful. Mm. It's just a really wonderful film. Did you enjoy the remake of The Hills Have Eyes? I I went to the premiere in L.A., and I liked the beginning. Um, but after, after they took that thing with the metal teeth and extended out, and it, it started to get campy for me. And um, it, it, I think it, for me, it, it, it was chase, kill, chase, kill, as opposed to terrifying you and bringing you into a situation that, that was based in reality. It, it turned into, to me, it seemed to become a violent video game. Not to the degree of, you know, films like Saw and other areas, because that, that's a realm I just don't have much taste for. Uh, so, um, yeah, I try to be polite when I talk about it, but maybe the next film he makes will be better and be an original story. Um, Death House is, uh, out, is being pushed real heavy now. We did that a few years ago. And it had, you know, it had Kane and me and Sid, and I think, uh, Ken was in it, and, um, even, uh, Pinhead, uh, uh, 
so they're they're pushing that real heavy. I, I haven't seen the finished version yet, but people are talking it up pretty well, so that's kind of cool. Yeah, I think I think that's coming out in February, right? Do they officially announce that? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. that was. Um, for those that don't know, it's kind of the Expendables of horror, and uh, exactly. I think uh, Robert England's in that too, right? I think he is. Uh, I love the scene where we're uh, the Seven Evils or Eight Evils. I think it's the Seven Evils, and uh, Kane Hodder actually uh, releases us from this maximum kind of scary uh, prison for the, uh, the spirits, and uh, and we he's. He, he, it's so nice to see him have a, a dramatic moment. He's really quite, uh, he has a lot of depth. He's not just a stuntman. And we did Ed Gein, the butcher at Plainsfield together, and we had a great scene in the truck. But there's a wonderful scene in the uh, Death House where Kane is uh, so happy that he's released us all. And then uh, we explain to him that he's been tricked and, uh, and used. And the look on his face is it's just great acting. It's just like, no, 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 you don't understand. Uh, I did a good thing, and, and I'm going to get rewarded, and he doesn't get rewarded, but that's a little teaser for you. It's, uh, <laughs> that sounds good. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a great moment. Cool. Um, we also, you know, wanted to touch on some movie, other movies you've been in, like uh, The Devil's Rejects and The Lords of Salem. How are working mm-hmm. on those films? Well, uh, uh, between the two, uh, um, Rejects, of course, is far superior. Uh, I mean, Rob really hit the mark on that, and it's always fun to work with my uh, my fellow actor friends, uh, you know, Bill Mosley and, and Ken and everybody. Um, I just thought it was... Uh, uh, stronger than uh, Lords of Salem. Uh, the ending is very peck and polish. It's just quite nice. The the whole chicken scene was uh, got ridiculous. Uh, <laughs> so I had to play it angry because the guy uh, went off script. And I guess he's a stand-up comedian uh, in his day job. But, I mean, Ken and I are standing there going, waiting. We know what the lines are. And he's just going on and on and on and on. And, so he didn't leave me with much option other than where he took it. So <laughs> that left me as, you know, okay, I guess Cleveland's going to have to get pissed off now. So, so that's how that over-the-top angry thing happened, and we we walked up. And, um, it, it, uh, the, the scenes with, um, with the sheriff and, uh, and uh, Priscilla are just uh, very intense. So I would say... Um, Rejects uh, that Rob has, he had a really good uh, finger on the pulse of his audience and to how much he would stimulate, overstimulate, and, and, and give you a little bit of a release and then work it back up into a frenzy. And in the end, of course, you know, you know, did they die? Well, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, you know, but the, the, the slow motion finish uh, was was pretty darn cool. Lords of Salem, um, we had an issue with uh, the actors that were arresting the witches. Uh, we had filmed until late in the mo- all through the evening with the actresses um, basically freezing themselves. It was so cold. And uh, this big epic, the bonfires with the, cr- cr- with the crosses and everything. And, and toward the end of the evening, almost morning, we had where the, pro- you know, we, uh, uh, Sid Haig and I, um, the Magnus brothers were butchers and the, the constables, they come with a arrest warrant to our house where we have our butcher shop. And we go, oh yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll take you to where they are and when we get them, we'll kill them, we'll chop them up or whatever it is we're going to do. But when the, the girls are uh, huddled down around the, ball, in the fire, uh, they're supposed to read the arrest warrant. And mm. here's what we hear. Rob, can you make the torches brighter? I can't read the number. <laughs> and I looked at Sid, and Sid had Sid just said, "Well, we're screwed." So we went back to our trailers for about an hour and a half until uh, Rob said, "Well, we're the sun's coming up. We can't get this scene, and um, we'll just have to." They didn't. The company wouldn't let us reshoot the scene, so there was no explanation as to why the, the floating entity on the wall is there later and, 
and why the witches, what happened to the witches. And uh, I told Rob, I said, look, those are scripted lines. These are people that have done Shakespeare in London. These are people that have Oscars. These, you know, they should have known their lines. And Rob said, well, you know, if I had known they couldn't read their lines, I would have gotten them prescription glasses and a period piece, you know. But <laughs> again, it goes back to being a professional. Mm, yes. If you, if you know you're going to be reading an arrest warrant at night in the dark, well, it's usually dark at night, and um, uh, you, you should memorize your lines. If you can't memorize your lines, then you have to let your director know and and do it accordingly. They, they can put a, you know, they could put a microphone in your ear and feed you the lines if that is necessary. Mm-hmm. So because of that unprofessional attitude, um, coming to coming to work unprepared, um, it doesn't show to me appreciation of what your producers and your company uh, are spending per minute. Because even if you're a beginning filmmaker, it costs you so much a minute, and you have to know how much that minute costs you. Mm-hmm. So it's just that's your business part. You need all of those aspects. I remember doing a Highway to Heaven with Michael Landon, and I had memorized all of the script, and um, like five people in the scene were doing a conversation, and I'm playing the devil, and we're having this conversation, and all of a sudden, my mind just went blank. And Michael just says, cut. And the second he said cut, the script lady had the script in front of my nose and gave me the preparatory line prior to the line that I uh, did, did not produce. And I go, yeah, that's it. And she goes, you ready? Yeah. Okay. Continuing on. We nailed it. Good. Moving on. We're walking off to set to the next setup. Michael walks up to me and he puts his hand on my shoulder and he says, don't worry. We, we all lose, our, we all forget our lines once in a while. And he walked off a little bit, and and I knew what he meant was, don't let that ever happen again. <laughs> later, later in the day, he comes up to me, and he, uh, we're having lunch, and he says, look, he says, um, I wasn't busting your chops. I mean, you did fine. I mean, and we do all, you know, have a mind fart once in a while. <laughs> he says, I only hired the best people, and you were right up there. You did a great job. He says, all my people on, on my highway to heaven have worked with me from my early years on Bonanza. And at, we're shooting in Los Angeles. He says, I want everybody to get done on time, not to not pay overtime, but so people can beat the traffic and get home and sit down and have dinner with their family. So it is an extended family working with people from other satellite families. And um, the more we care about what everybody uh, is doing on the set, um, the smoother it goes for everyone. And then I could talk for a long time about, you know, uh, starlets that have, you know, caused grief on the sets and stuff like that. And the guys, too. You know, don't get me wrong, I've seen some silly behavior, but you'll have to wait for my book. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds good. Um, I was thinking about how you're talking about your relationships with other actors and directors, and I'm really interested to hear about your relationship with fans, especially since you go to so many horror conventions and they're all happy to see you. Um, What's it like interacting with fans? I remember my first fan letter, and it said, um, it it was mailed to my agent, and he forwarded it to me, and it said, Michael Berryman is more handsome than Eric Estrada. That's how it started out. And uh, um, it was a lovely uh, letter I answered back. And uh, um, I I, I get fan mail. Uh, That's why I have a P.O. box so that people aren't at my front door. But uh, I love my fans. Uh, um, uh, It's a relationship that you have. You're putting energy out there, and they're receiving it, and it's great. I have a lot of friends on Facebook. I've got 5,000, I can't have any more, and there's like 6,000 more that want to join. But my point is that with conventions, they're really a lot of fun. I have a great time because, um, you know, I put my uh, pants on one leg at a time, and I, I'm, just, I'm just me. And um, I like to listen to what they have to say. Uh, I've created friendships over the many decades. Uh, um, uh, and when I do a panel, I, I like to ask them questions and get feedback coming back. Um, the conventions are a lot of fun. Um, 
that's a lot of traveling and it's a lot of energy exchange at the end of you know weekend travel and pretty spent but it's well worth it um and some of the questions i get from the kids um um i i've met children that told me that their parents um went to see the hills have eyes in a drive-in and one thing led to another and you know wound up uh um, you know, get married or whatever, not saying that that was the reason, but um, <laughs> you never know who you're talking to. Somebody could be in a costume and they could be, a, uh, you know, a, ma- a mathematician or a geologist or a doctor. Or you, n- you never know. Um, and um, if you've never been to a convention, I, I recommend it. Um, you'll see a lot of really, a lot of cool things at the vendor's table and where people do artwork, you'll see some incredible art. Um, we did a lot of screening of, of really cool movies, and um, um, I got to meet some of my fans, like Alice Cooper and, uh, um, you know, other people. Uh, working with Molly Crew was kind of fun. They were actually fans of me, and then they and they found out who my manager was, and they said, hey, we want Michael to do this uh, video with us and open in the boys' room. And I never forget, my, it was my agent, and he goes, Hey kid, I got you a gig. It's a band. <laughs> they're 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 called Motley something. I go, you mean Motley Curly? Yeah, yeah, that's it. Here's the address. You know, have fun tomorrow. And, and we had fun. I had somebody be my driver because uh, we had some ice. Uh, we had some big buckets with ice in it and some bottles or something. We partied with the we partied with the crew, and it's a very fun video. It's about just a delightful, fun video. Well, not to put you on the spot, but do you have a favorite uh, role that you've played or a favorite character? Um, yes, uh, um, I have. I'll say two. Um, there's a movie with Eddie Furlong called Below Zero. Mm. There's a very touching scene that I do in there uh, that has for special uh, special reasons. Um, my favorite role of all time probably is the X-Files season three uh, episode is called Revelations. And um, I play at the beginning, they think I'm uh, kind of a creepy guy and I take this, uh, I'm a caretaker. I kind of like to there's a mom and a son. The son has stigmata, and in school they think it's child abuse. And while he's in the office, I show up in school and I whisk him off to my house. And they, so they wind up. Uh, uh, he winds up being uh, abducted from my place by uh, uh, the, the devil, and Scully and Mulder um, arrest arrest me and they're interrogating me, and uh, they switch roles. Uh, Scully becomes the believer. Mulder um, is the skeptic, and uh, um, and they realize that I'm a guardian angel. And that was a real special uh, role for me. It was the last time I ever auditioned. Um, you see a hundred people per role, and when I read the the part, I said I have to do this for personal reasons. There's a story that might be in my book. Uh, but there had been some hardships that I dealt with through uh, uh, family, and uh, um, the ending wasn't, uh, it was beyond our control, and so there was some healing that needed to happen, and this role gave me that opportunity to take that energy and, you know, tap that well, and then put it in a quiet place, and then that's where the energy came for me to bring the character to life. So art and um, you know, acting, um, it's like a good uh, like jazz or a really good song. So some, some whales are deeper than others, but that was probably one of the deepest uh, whales I got to tap from. And I was grateful, because uh, when I met with uh, uh, Chris Carter and uh, David Nutter, my director, I said, no one can play this role but me. And when we're on the set in Vancouver, uh, you'll you'll see why. I just am asking you to trust me. And I read, I hadn't had the whole script, but I had enough information to know that I wanted to make that connection. And they just smiled and said, 
when you leave the lobby, act like you didn't get the part, but you have the part. And I barely made it out the door without, you know, doing a somersault. So <laughs> that's, that's my favorite role. Well, I think you've kind of imparted a lot of wisdom throughout this whole thing to, to budding actors, and I hope they're taking notes. But if there's one thing that you could tell somebody that's either trying to break into the industry in general or horror just just that, do you have anything that you would want to say to them? Yes, I do. Um, regardless of your age or gender, regardless of any of that, Never compromise on what you believe um, as far as how you should be treated or, 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 or um, um, how um, n- never sell yourself short. Going to a party will not get you work. Mm-hmm. Compromise, if you feel you're in a compromising situation, then you speak up and defend yourself. But on the artistic side, I would say learn as much as you can. Learn what a camera does. Look through a camera lens. When you watch TV or your movies, start to understand how they edit it. When they do a wide shot, understand that eventually they're going to come in and do a close-up, and then a real tight close-up. Look in the mirror and just feel different emotions from happy to sad and excited and everything in between without speaking any, without speaking or moving. It should read on your face from deep inside. Those kinds of things. Learn your technical skills. When they put those marks on the ground, know how to hit them. Know what the camera sees. When I got to look through a Panavision uh, camera on the set of Cuckoo's Nest, uh, my director said, and I said, what do I need to know? Same question you asked me. He walked me up behind the camera. He said, take a look. He says, okay. Then he walked me in the front of the camera. He said, do you see the lens? I go, yes, Milos. He goes, I want you to have a love affair with the glass. So I went and got a camera and I got a book on photography and I started to understand what an f-stop is and depth of field and all that kind of stuff. So there's your technical aspects to it. There's your homework, your lines and all that kind of stuff. There's also stuff like, you know, a lot of people like to see, well, he had a handkerchief in that pocket on this angle and then when they did the reverse, it might be a couple hours later, the hanky was in the other pocket. So there's so much to be uh, involved with, and that's what makes it rich. That's what makes it engrossing, and it's it's a deep experience. Um, It's not, you know, if it was just jelly beans and, you know, party and being foolish, you would never have any quality. Mm -hmm. It's actually work. I I used to invite people on the set because I would drive, and they couldn't leave until I left. After a couple of 14-hour days, I said, I think I'm going to go on the lawn <laughs> instead of going back to the set. you got to retain oh, some like sense that. of normality. Well, yeah. You, you create your character, you put your wardrobe away, and then uh, you drive home and do your thing, study for the next day, but you're not on the set all the time. Some people are 24-7 on, and that's a little too perky for me. (laughs) Well, Michael, uh, when is your, do you have an ETA for your book or any future projects we should keep an eye out for? Uh, Well, future projects is uh, Friday nights, uh, Sci-Fi Channel, Z Nation. Um, I have more uh, the founder of my role. It pops up and out over the next couple weeks and hopefully into next season. Um, they don't give me a heads up on that, but it, uh, that's something to look for in the book. Uh, I'm thinking probably uh, early summer next year. It should be, I should have it to a publisher. Nice. Aside nice. from that, I'll be at the, uh, uh, in Salem, Massachusetts, I think, uh, uh, next week or the week after, I think it's the week after. 
Aside from that, that's about it, kiddo. (laughs) Awesome. Uh, Well, we did ask some of our followers if they had any questions for you, and someone did uh, bring up a question. You brought uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Uh, They wanted to know if Will Sampson ever offered you any juicy fruit gum. <laughs> that's a very that's a very sweet question. Uh, I, I I appreciate it. Actually, uh, Will Sampson was my neighbor. Uh, we were at the hotel for 127 days. I was, and we were staying at a, a hotel. He was my uh, at the room next to mine. And after uh, when we got off work, there weren't very many restaurants open. We got tired at the same old restaurant at the hotel, so. I turned my kitchen, my bathroom into a kitchen. I got a you know electric a sunbeam cooker with a lid and spices, and so anyway, I would be cooking up stuff, and it would waft into his bathroom, and <laughs> he would call my room, and he'd go, "Michael, I smell veggies. Where are you at food? I had some friends over, yeah. So uh, yeah, we'll come, uh, come on over, and we'll." We'll have a feast, and uh, he was just a wonderful guy. Yeah, he was just a wonderful guy. That's wonderful. <laughs> That's an awesome story. It really happened. Yep. <laughs> well, um, oh, here's a, here's a, here's a real quick funny cuckoo's story. Oh yeah. Okay, we're at the hotel. Uh, Jeff Nicholson and uh, Louise Fletcher and uh, uh, the production crew. Are, they rented a house. Okay, a house. We're at a hotel. Uh, you know, Chris Lloyd and uh, everybody else were at a hotel. So all the locals figured out, hey, at the, at the, at the mental hospital down the street, they're filming cuckoo's nest. So they thought Jack Nicholson would be at the hotel. So people would hang out at the bar. It was a Black Angus, and it was the only bar restaurant in the hotel. And we were there every night because that was our home. So I remember one Friday night, or it might have been Saturday night, we worked six days a week. Uh, Chris Lloyd and I and uh, a couple of the other actors got invited by some of the locals who had been hanging out after a while. And they said, hey, we're having a, you know, we got a couple kegs of Heineken. We got food and munchies. Come on out and meet our friends. This, you know, uh, you're welcome to come to one of our parties. So we did. Well, um, after we all kind of introduced us, none of us had done anything much, really. So we're kind of hanging around. We're mingling, having, uh, you know, some more beers and conversation and a couple a couple drinks and after a while they realized that Jack Nicholson was not going to show up so they started to ignore us and like you know well you're, you're not Jack you know they thought they were going to meet Jack so I called us a cab and then they said well it's going to be about 40 minutes so I, I had a, an press and we went into the to the to the garage where they had you know, tubs of ice and you know, kegs of Heineken and, you know, the serious beer aficionados were there. <laughs> and they were just there to, you know, unwind for the weekend. And and so uh, we had a hangover the next morning, but I do remember saying, you know, they, they really tried to take advantage of us, so let's show them a thing or two. And let's kill this keg. <laughs> and a good thing. But we were very responsible uh, actors and driven home in the taxi and, um, had a couple of cups of coffee in the morning. You know. <laughs> that's, that's the way it is. Oh, and, and here's something really, really funny. I have a day off. I'm walking downtown Salem, and they're doing the fishing thing with the bus. And on the back of the school bus is Michael Douglas and our producer and the camera. And up front is the other actors. And there behind the wheel of this bus is Jack Nicholson. <laughs> and Jack, we're going right down Main Street, Little Main Street, and I see the bus. Nobody's paying it much attention, and uh, I hear everybody's yelling out the window at me. He's, hey, Michael, hi, how you doing? Hey, Michael, it's us. And Jack honks the horn, and everybody's waving to me, and people are barely looking at all. And down the street they drive up to the location where they go fishing, and I'm going, Wow, what a strange moment. Nobody knows about Cuckoo's Nest. And here he goes, Jack Nicholson, driving a bus down the street, waving narrowly, waving and high-fiving me, and, and nobody, gives, you know, nobody gives it a second notice. It was kind of, kind of a cool moment. <laughs> That's pretty incredible. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I awesome. think I was chewing the juicy fruit while I was walking down the street. <laughs> 
Well, I think we uh, I think we've kind of touched on everything. So um, we uh, we appreciate your time so much. That uh, went a little bit longer than we had guesstimated. So that's that's awesome. You had some really good stories. That's <laughs> turned out very well. So. Well, thank you very much, and I uh, appreciate your uh, uh, your hospitality. And uh, uh, it all really happened. Didn't have to make anything up. Yeah. Well, <laughs> we'll we'll definitely be looking forward towards your to the book next year. That sounds really awesome. Thank you. And uh, be sure to check out The Evil Within. I think you'll really like it. Nice. We'll, yeah, do. we'll do that. For sure. All right. Well, we're signing right, off. Good. Thank you, Michael. Yeah. You're welcome. Have a good night. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Bye.